UTS website with regard to Dr Virus's work. The laws of a country shape and change traditions and culture and we can play an important role in advancing and ensuring gender equality. But when we analyse different laws, how do we determine which laws are effective in advancing women's rights and which are not? Which ones work and which ones fail? Through her research, UTS's Dr Ramona Vairasa has come up with a unique way to answer these questions with the help of data science. Laws should be equal, but due to biases, be it intentional or not, most legislation misses the mark. Inequality can be obvious, like how Indigenous Australians are not mentioned in the Constitution at all, or subtle, like how the use of certain language and wording can exclude a gender. So what are we to do? Well, we can assess every law ever written under a lens of equality to ensure that each piece of legislation ever passed treats every conceivable group equally without question. But there are a lot of laws, and that's a lot of work for even a large group of people. Besides, their own biases could leak into their assessment, and then we are back to square one. So we turn to AI, the analytical powerhouse that doesn't mind a bit of busy work. And that's where we meet the Gender Legislative Index. The Gender Legislative Index is an online index that allows us to measure how well laws are working to advance women's rights. That's Ramona Vijayarasa. Hi, my name is Ramona Vijayarasa. I'm a senior lecturer and the Juris Doctor Program Head in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm the architect behind the Gender Legislative Index. I had a chat to Ramona about the GLI, including its origins and where its future lies. So around the world, there are many indices, some really well known, that are doing a good job at unpacking discrimination in the law or how law can do better. So the World Bank has the Women, Business and the Law Index. But what I think is missing in some of those indices, which are fantastic, is pointing countries that want to do better in the right direction, offering benchmarks and good practice models. And I hope that's a gap that the Gender Legislative Index can fill. So it takes domestic legislation and can say, well, these, these laws are partially meeting international standards or showing a complete disregard of international standards, or yes, we've made it. This is a good practice example that other countries can learn from. I was going to shift the focus to you for a little bit, Ramona. What inspired you to make the GLI in the first place? That's that's a good question. Um, So I suppose I've been a lifelong gender equality advocate. I've been doing this for many years. I um, grew up in a family, the children of migrants who moved to Australia in the 1970s and and was always raised with this consciousness um, of those around us with less. I've also always wanted to be a lawyer. One of my first non-corporate human rights jobs was interning at the Coalition Against Trafficking in Manila uh, just after I graduated. And then I spent about a decade working for international organisations and international women's rights NGOs all around the world, in Vietnam, in Ghana, in Ukraine, in Spain, in Nicaragua, in Brussels. It's, it's really global experience that I bring to my research. And in that time, I saw a lot of women talk about the law failing them. Uh, the examples I gave before of the woman farmer in Liberia, the um, young woman in Brazil suffering violence, but there's so many. You know, I've been to Cambodia and seen it there. I've been to the occupied Palestinian territories. You know, law can do better on a global scale. And I think that's really motivated me to dedicate my work to gender responsive legislation and legislating. But there's an interesting particular story around the Gender Legislative Index. So you may have seen that the laws evaluated so far from the Philippines, Indonesia, and Sri Lanka 
all countries that have had women leaders. So the Gender Legislative Index was not my main agenda at the time it was created. I was really keen to study women presidents and to ask, do women presidents make women's lives better? And when women are in power, are the laws enacted better? Because in presidential systems, there's a really nice link between legislative powers and, and presidential powers. Presidents can control much more the legislation. They can veto bills. They can issue executive orders. But when I went to study all the legislation that these women had in, that had been enacted when these women were in power, I had around 2,000 laws and knew I couldn't alone evaluate them. But I found that there was no tool to evaluate the gender responsiveness of the laws. And so that motivated me to embark on creating the Gender Legislative Index and finding brilliant collaborators at Rapido Social and the Faculty of Engineering at UTS who did the software engineering and data analytics at the UTS Connected Intelligence Centre. And so the Gender Legislative Index is a collaboration that came out of this interest in knowing, do women presidents do better for women? Um, and my new book called The Woman President will be out by Oxford University Press next month. Um, but it was the start that has led to a much bigger project and I think an index that has far greater possibilities than um, just measuring the impact of women presidents, but to really look at, you know, what kind of laws are being enacted globally and how can we make them better for women? And how does the index actually work? What is it, what is this process in deciding, you know, what is and what isn't? Um, it's a great question. So one of, one of the things that I think is key about the index is that every country is measured against the same standard. So I had a decade working in civil society before I returned to academia. And in that time, really got to see how there are certain countries around the world that we know are poorly performing when it comes to women's rights. I spent a lot of time working with women farmers in Liberia, for example, who want to have legal entitlements as smallholder landowners and want to have better legal rights when they go to sell their products in the market as women. I met Brazilian women who want to be better protected by the domestic violence laws because they can rarely leave situations of violence at home. But I've also seen discrimination in the law in countries like Australia. So I think the real starting point with the index is to have a global index that acknowledges that gender inequality certainly isn't a third world problem and every country is measured and every country is measured against the same standards. So the next question to ask is, well, what is the best place to find those standards? So the index relies on international women's rights law. It relies on the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It's a UN convention or UN treaty that almost all countries in the world have signed up to. And it is, extracts from those that convention seven criteria that every law is evaluated against. But obviously the way in which a law operates in tax will be different from gender-based violence or reproductive health. So the index also has a series of benchmarks that are also from international law, but law specific to explain what does a service look like if it's a tax law? Or what does equality look like if it's a law on gender-based violence? Or what does redress look like to give women something back if they're harmed, if it's a law on women's health? And so then a group of human evaluators come together and they evaluate a law against the seven criteria, applying the benchmarks to make their evaluation about certain provisions of the law. And then they also step back and give an overall headline score for the law. And then a machine learning algorithm comes in and takes all of that data, it treats it like a decision tree. So all these criteria and steps along to a certain endpoint and gives an overall score for the law. Why does it do that? Well, I think it's really important to tell a story. You know, people wanna know, is this a good law or a bad law? And lawyers often disagree. So the evaluators might have some levels of disagreement 
and the algorithm allows us to say, well, this is the final score. And it does that by treating all the laws the same. And so it learns off a data set, not knowing if the law is a tax law or a gender-based violence law, not knowing if the country's Indonesia or Australia or who was in power at the time the law was enacted. And it does that to bring a bit of integrity and remove some of the bias that humans naturally bring when we look at a law. It's almost looking at the pure essence of the law itself rather than the context of it around it. I think that's a really interesting way to do it. It sort of does both. It's, it's a really good observation, Cameron. It, it, it looks at the text of the law purely and evaluators look at the text and say, what is the intention of this law? And they do an evaluation for its intention. And then they do look at its likely effect and they do an evaluation for its likely effect but based on the provisions of the law. It's not trying to look at implementation. And I think to look at implementation would be, is a really essential next step, but it requires experience and expertise and interviews from the women who have a lived experience of that law. And from Australia, I can't provide that lived experience of a law in, in Indonesia or Sri Lanka, but there is a really interesting aspect that I'd like to scale up in the Gender Legislative Index, which is stories from the field which can then go and, and look at uh, and ask experts, well, okay, this is how we've evaluated the law on paper, what's happening in practice? Because I think that kind of story allows us to complete the thought loop because implementation is obviously such a key part of the story as well. And is that an aspect of the GLI that you really want to focus on improving? Look, I think at this stage, what I'm really keen to do is, is scale up the gender legislative index. I think there's a potential here to have a global repository of good practice laws. So that when you do advocacy and you go to domestic legislators, you might go to an MP in Indonesia or an MP in Australia or an MP in Spain and say, this is where I think our law should go. I think it will be stronger to have a much broader range of laws in the Gender Legislative Index from different regions around the world to compare different practice. So that to me is the, the immediate next step with where I'd like to go with the Gender Legislative Index. Certainly, I think completing that thought loop and, and having those stories from the field is a is part of those sort of medium to long-term goals. Absolutely, because I think it's really interesting to look at implementation once you've evaluated how good a law is on paper. Yeah, so why do we need something like this in the first place? Why can't we just rely on lawmakers to make things that are already equitable? I think that's a really valid question. You know, we've, we just had a federal election here in Australia. We had a real shift in the members of parliament, um, including greater diversity and greater gender balance than we've seen ever before. And when we vote for members of parliament, we trust that they will have carriage of what matters to us most. But our members of parliament come from diverse backgrounds with diverse expertise. And there might be members of parliament very willing and interested in having a conversation about gender equality, but they just may not have the skills to do it. And so when they're tabling legislation, they might not be conscious of the need to bring a gender perspective. And so laws have been enacted in the past without that gender perspective. And if we wanna stop that happening in the future, we need to start evaluating the laws we have on paper. So one is to correct some of the discrimination that exists in Australian law, and I can talk a little bit about that. Two is to give legislators who are willing and able the tools in their hands to think differently about the types of laws that they're tabling. Three is to give the advocates who want to lobby for change the evaluations in their hand to say, look, we can do better. You know, Australia ranked 50th on the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index in 2021, 50th in the world on a global ranking on gender inequality. You know, behind the Philippines, behind Zimbabwe, behind Albania, behind many of the world's other richest nations, other OECD countries of which we're part. 
And so we want to be asking ourselves why. And when I talk about that ranking, it doesn't mean that women in Australia are worse off than women in Zimbabwe. It means the difference between men and women in Zimbabwe is smaller than the difference between men and women in Australia. So we're falling behind and I think law can do better. And so by having a gender legislative index, we can go to people who are advocating for change and say, well, here are some evaluations of Australian law. Here's some evaluations of good practice overseas. You've got the tools in your hand now to explain to your member of parliament what kind of change you'd like to see. Would you mind talking on some of the inequalities in Australia that you're trying to address specifically with the, with the index? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, I think for a long time in Australia, many years ago, we corrected gender-specific language in law. So that was what people for a long time understood as being the problem, that women were written out of the law altogether, so we brought in gender-neutral language. But that doesn't correct the fact that the lawmakers may not take into account the specific needs and interests of women. That's a much more complex exercise. And so over time, we've been seeing laws come into place, and often the law is actually written by parliamentary council who turn the policy idea into legalese with discrimination embedded in it. And I think one of the best examples is paid parental leave in Australia. So Australia introduced paid parental leave in 2010. We introduced a dad and partner pay leave in 2012. Now, Australia's paid parental leave today, because it's been amended and expanded, gives women maternity leave or the primary carer 18 weeks of paid leave. So that's 12 weeks of continuous leave plus two months that you can take flexibly, so 18 weeks. Now the OECD average for paid maternity leave in 2018 was 51 weeks. Here you get 18. So that's the world's 38 richest nations, which includes Australia. So we're behind the OECD average. The OECD average for dad or partner pay is just over eight weeks. Here you get two. So that's a glaring example of how we are falling behind and Australia can do better. But then what the Gender Legislative Index has also shown is if you look at the text of the Paid Parental Leave Act, there's a flaw in the legislative drafting because women are named in the law as primary carers. The law names mothers as primary carers. And so in Australia, we have a situation where 95% of primary carers end up being women and men are not putting their hand up for primary care. Whereas in other countries, they're shifting into a model for shared care. Now, shared care is important because it's, it's, a, it's a human right to have shared care, shared responsibility for kids. It's better for dads and the kids because they're missing out, but it's also better for women. Because what part of what's driving the Australian gender pay gap is that women are doing the primary role of shared caring. They're not returning to the workforce as long. They're in paid part-time work. So they're being held back financially. They're being held back from promotion. They're being held back in terms of their superannuation. And I'm not saying that the Paid Parental Leave Act, naming women as primary carers is the only problem, but here you have an example of writing into law that women will be primary carers, whereas the good practice model is to move towards shared care. And that is a problem in our law. And that law is changing and shaping behaviour. And I think it's a really good example to remind people not only that discrimination exists in Australian law, but also that one example of discrimination can have massive flow on effects. You know, this conversation about Australia's gender pay gap, which was just announced again today, is a huge one and paid parental leave is a big part of explaining why and that unequal shared care of explaining why women are being held back into terms of the gender pay gap. Though you may know this, but the Workplace Gender Equality Agency just released a new report on the gender pay gap and age and has found that there is a $40,000 a year gender pay gap between the ages of 45 and 65. $40,000 a year women are being held back. 
And so the gender pay gap isn't, for those who don't um, fully understand this, isn't about women being paid differently for doing the same job as men. That's not allowed in Australian law. It's a measure of women's position in the market when compared to men overall. And it's showing that women are being underpaid. And part of that is because we're doing the primary role of, of caring and we're returning to work at a much higher rate of part-time work than full-time compared to men. And part of that is because of the Paid Parental Leave Act itself. And then how can you see the GLI helping to remedy this inequality in this specific example? I think that's a great question because, you know, I often talk to people, women's rights advocates, or just women who are affected by this, and they say, how can we change this? And I think the first thing is to get this information into the hands of legislators. So I'm very privileged to be going to the Commonwealth Women Parliamentarians annual conference in July in Brisbane. So I'll be spending a day with women parliamentarians who are in state parliament and federal parliament, and I'll be giving them these examples because I think people are not always conscious of the fact that there is a problem in the law in the first place. And people are not always conscious about the fact that other countries are doing it differently and doing it better. So to me, it's about gathering the evidence and getting it into the hands of legislators. I think another um, key part is to get the coalitions of women this evidence as well. So the Equality Rights Alliance, the National Women's Coalition need this evidence in their hand because they're the ones who can bring together the agenda and really lobby for change. You know, as I mentioned earlier, with the Australian federal election, there is a change in the gender balance in the House and in the Senate federally. There are 10 women cabinet members and there is a hope that this law can be changed. What I think is really key, however, is not allowing to just see incremental change. This is not about chipping away at the edges and expanding 18 weeks to 20 weeks or 22 weeks. This is a rethink, a complete overhaul of this piece of legislation. And I think that might be hard for some to accept. Australia was quite slow to enact paid parental leave compared to other countries around the world. And it's something we fought for for a very long time. But we need to ask ourselves, why is the Gender Legislative Index showing that this law is far from meeting international standards? What are the provisions that are problematic? How can we change them? And then do the advocacy around it that can also lead to the social and cultural change around shared care as well. What's your dream end goal with the GLI in terms of it positively affecting change in, in, in legislation? Oh, I can give a goal that's been met and then I can talk about a dream goal. So, you know, in terms of a goal that's been met, I was really pleased to see Ruth Forrest, an independent MP, present the Gender Legislative Index in Tasmanian Parliament. So Tasmanian parliamentarians have heard about the index. They know the seven criteria that every good legislator can think about when making legislation. And what was really exciting was that Ruth Forrest used that as part of a motion for Tasmanian Parliament to set up a gender equality committee. And that's been successful. In terms of, you know, the, 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 the goal for the Gender Legislative Index, you know, I'm, my goal is to see change. So whoever can bring about that change, I want to get the index into their hands. You know, if the World Bank starts using it to evaluate countries all across the world, and we have a database of 200 laws, that would be fantastic because I think that's what we need, better sharing of good practice legislation, better accountability through systematic reporting and evaluation. So I think if the Gender Legislative Index reached that kind of scale, you could see that you know, widespread database, good practice and accountability at a, at a level that I think is needed to really see law globally be much more effective in advancing the interests of women. To give a bit of context to the debate, well, I was actually debating the establishment of a gender and equality um, joint house parliamentary committee. That's Ruth Forrest. Yeah, I'm Ruth Forrest. I'm an independent member in the upper house of the state parliament of Tasmania. 
She's one of the more vocal supporters of the GLI, and we heard from her at the top of the episode, where she introduced the GLI in a speech to the Tasmanian Parliament. And um, we don't in Tasmania don't have such a committee, and I think it's really important that when looking at legislation, you look at all aspects, but particularly agenda and equality issues. Um, that you may think a bill or a piece of legislation or a policy would have similar, equal, the same impact on men and women or other um, people from different minority groups. But clearly that's not the case at times. And I think these sort of things are really important to ensure that we can address things like the gender pay gap, which still some people find very difficult to actually understand what that actually looks like and what it means. So in the course of the debate, I raised the Gender Legislative Index as one such tool that a committee could look at um, in terms of how that could be applied in Tasmania when looking at legislation. How I came across it was I was um, I was intending to attend a conference that um, Dr Ramona Bayarasa spoke at in, um, in Sydney a couple of couple of years ago I think now and unfortunately I couldn't get there but I got the access to the papers and I subsequently invited Ramona to Tasmania to speak to members of parliament well then COVID fixed that and so <laughs> I still haven't actually met um, Ramona yet um, but I've also invited her to speak at our Commonwealth Women Parliamentarians Conference which is on next week in Brisbane and she will be presenting at that. So um, I'm yet to actually see how the Gender Legislative Index actually works but I've read a lot about it. I've read a lot about Ramona's work and I think it, it does, from my understanding, it provides a very um, neutral um, or you know, non-biased look at legislation to ensure that gendered impacts are fully considered and it can be rated um, quite independently to ensure that things are not overlooked that um, our conscious or unconscious bias may prevent us from seeing. And how do you envision the GLI operating within the bounds of Tasmanian legislature? Well, I guess that's really a matter for the government. I'm not a member of the government. I'm an independent member. Um, but I know our current Minister for Women, her name's Jo Palmer, and she's very interested in looking at tools to ensure that policy that's developed by the government does as much as you possibly can equally consider the effects on men and women. The Gender Legislative Index, the GLI, won't necessarily be the, the only thing that the committee would look at. Um, the first thing that I would like to see looked at is um, the sad and tragic high rates of male suicide in Tasmania. And I know it's not just Tasmania that has this issue, but we have a very rural population and we're seeing um, a disproportionate high number of men take their own lives. And so I think that's a matter too, that we perhaps need to look at our policies around suicide prevention to make sure that we're actually um, not putting in place one policy designed to address um, and support suicide prevention, but it actually doesn't deal with the people who are perhaps more at risk, particularly of completion of suicide. And how uh, responsive was uh, the Upper House when you initially introduced the concept to them? Initially, I think the government were a little bit hesitant. They always fear that committees will hold everything up and you know, second guess everything that they're trying to do, which I think is probably um, an inappropriate response because you, you really want governments to feel they are fully informed and across all the issues when bringing forward policy or um, legislation. But when I actually brought it on for debate, I had full support in our house and it went to the other house, it has to be debated in both houses and there was full support in the lower house as well. And we'll establish the committee after our winter break and, and get underway in August. The work that's been done to develop such a tool is really important work. Um, and I think 
when it, they've got a tool that has been used, um, I think it's been used on a number of pieces of legislation, including one that's before the federal parliament now that's underway. Um, I, d I think it's important that we utilise the tools that are available rather than trying to you know, second guess and look for other tools. Um, I hope that our government will take it up and actually have a proper and thorough look at it, but also to look at other means to ensure that not only gender impacts are assessed for legislation, but other, other areas um, that we may see inequality from other disadvantaged or minority groups. Do you hope that if this is successful in Tasmania, it can be a good model that can be used at a federal level? Oh, absolutely. I know the ACT does have a similar committee. That's the only other jurisdiction in the country. But there are about 30 other jurisdictions around the world that have um, either a women and equalities committees or, or some similar sort of committee that's a parliamentary committee. So I'm really pleased that Tasmania is leading the way with the ACT in the, in the country at the moment. And I would hope that others may look to this and, and see it as a really positive way for the future. You've been speaking on women's rights in terms of legislation. How will you um, pivot the GLI to accommodate those in the community who identify as non-binary, genderqueer? Because um, I know there's a bit of a, a shift in the law to accommodate those communities. So how do you see the GLI transitioning? It's an excellent question, Cameron. And I suppose the first thing is, I think the GLI has potential to sh help shift the law in this space because law in some countries is accommodating difference and diversity but in others it's being left behind and one of the places where I think it's probably been left behind more than others is actually international law so for example the UN convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women which is used by the index as the standard the committee that oversees it has been a little bit slow to embrace diversity and non-binary particularly because it was established as a convention just focused on women and yet the kind of discrimination that women suffer overtly or implicitly in the law is often driven by the same socio-cultural values and discrimination that leave excluded other non-binary groups. So I think it's about working across the boundaries rather than working in narrow categories to see how this kind of reform can better protect a diversity of people, both women, but also other groups who are discriminated against on the basis of gender. So I think where the Gender Legislative Index sits now is a perfect platform to be evaluating laws for that gender-based discrimination, not just against women, but against other non-binary groups who are suffering from exclusion or marginalisation from the law because they were also not considered when the law was drafted in the first place. Um, so hopefully that's a nice, smooth transition. You know, a lot of the standards that come from international law that are being incorporated in particular do look at the experiences of lesbian women and transgender women. But as I said before, I think a lot of the discrimination that is leaving women excluded and marginalised is driven by very patriarchal and heteronormative values that are also driving discrimination and exclusion against other non-binary groups. And it's, it's an opportunity to collaborate and come together to look at how can law do better and protecting the excluded and the marginalised. You were also named 2020 Woman in AI for the law specifically. What was it like to be recognised with that award and how are you going to use that platform to further the goals of the GLI? Thank you for mentioning the award. I mean, it was a real honour. As I mentioned before, I always wanted to be a lawyer, but certainly my journey into tech and artificial intelligence was unexpected. You know, I first dabbled with a bit of tech 
and women's rights when I was heading the women's rights team at ActionAid International, where we started using mobile phone apps and maps for women to mark unsafe spaces um, where they were suffering violence or harassment, um, or for women to mobilise to ask for better change. So better street lighting or better public transport. And that was my first sort of foray into tech and women's rights. But fast forward coming to the University of Technology, Sydney, where you know technology and social justice is at the heart, I realised I could bring tech and social justice together to create the Gender Legislative Index. Um, but it's been a real learning curve and I've had to walk through a very different door and, and talk a different language and learn to be able to see how AI could be used for a social justice cause. So it was a real honour to be recognised for, I suppose, the innovation and the, the courage that it took me to, to try something new. In terms of using the platform, you know, there's really interesting data from the Stanford Human-Centred Artificial Intelligence Index, which is showing just how few women are in AI and computer science. So in the last couple of years out of North America, the, they survey the PhD graduates in computing science and artificial intelligence and women only make up around 20%. So they're just not enough women. And yet clearly we're on the brink of an enormous opportunity here with AI and computing science. So I think we need to be talking about that until the numbers change. And so I'm using the platform of having been the woman in AI in the law category to really promote the award and to promote the value of having more women in education and employment in data science and computing science and in AI because I think it's really pivotal that women are not left behind and that the women in this space are supported to succeed and to support each other to, to climb up in those ranks. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SCI Radio, the University of Technology Sydney and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Cameron Furlong. Thanks for listening.